I think what could have been done was that we could have had government officials that really took accountability for the issues of the pandemic instead of putting the blame on the citizens themselves. Because let's be honest, like the government loves making an enemy out of the common Filipino. <laughs> they do. This episode is brought to you by HelixPay. HelixPay easily enables recurring payments across all major Philippine payment methods. Check out the Independent Collective's HelixPay store at www.indy-co-membership.helixpay.ph and join HelixPay today at www.helixpay.ph or check out the links in our show notes. Pushing boundaries through socially engaged conversations, this is the Independent Collective. I'm your host, Leah Angela Shoko. For our first episode of the month in celebration of our partnership with the Purple Sage Project, I am with fellow STEM student and writer, Jared Angela Lustre. Jared Angela Lustre is a writer and artist who was raised by his grandmothers in Sampaloc, Manila. Exposed to his family's struggles at an early age, he was influenced to use his talents to speak out against the common injustices that Filipinos face. He believes that art, as an expression of passion and strife, can inspire people to stand up for themselves and others. For over a year now, my uncle, Tito J, has been obsessed with cleaning. He was always somewhat of a germaphobe, but since the pandemic hit, a switch in him flipped that made his compulsive tendencies go haywire. Nothing gets inside our house anymore without being bathed in alcohol. After buying groceries, which he dreads, he would take them out of the bag and wipe them methodically, one by one, like an archaeologist unearthing relics. I would help him carry every bottle, box, and plastic pack, enduring the nauseating scent of isopropyl as I placed them on the dining table. Before entering himself, he hides in a corner to remove his clothes and puts on a new set he had prepared before leaving. He chucks the old ones in the washing machine, disposes of his mask, and heads to the shower. This baptism in antiseptic became standard protocol everyone had to follow. Washing our hands became like a religious practice, and the scent of disinfectant or incense. We only went out whenever we needed food. No one was allowed to visit, and no one, save for the adults, was to go out. Some of us thought it was absurd, but I understood DTJ. He was right to worry about a household of 12 people with vulnerable individuals as cases soared. We were confident for a time, waiting out the pandemic in our safeguard-scented sanctuary, hoping that a miracle would save us from this invisible enemy. We did everything right. Toward the end of March, my aunt's husband, Andro, started coughing uncontrollably. The morning he told us he couldn't breathe, my aunt bawled. He displayed all the symptoms, and we knew our sanctuary had finally collapsed. 
Call after call, we were rejected. Bed capacity is at 100%, the hospital said. We tried rushing him to the nearest facilities, but we were turned away. We opted to have him stay in a tent at the car park of a lone hospital that still accepted patients. For three days, he and my aunt waited, among others, for a spot in the emergency room. He waited in his wheelchair with nothing but thin canvas to shield him from the sweltering heat. Soon, my aunt fell ill, too, after caring for her husband and had to self-isolate at home. Both of them left their two daughters in our care. The youngest would have to celebrate her ninth birthday, quarantined with her sister in the room, while their mother tried to recuperate downstairs, and their father was strapped to an oxygen machine on the other side of Manila. What went wrong? The question now burns in our minds. The dread in our house is thick, almost suffocating. The fear of infection tails us every passing day. It sowed distrust in our family and divided us more than the plastic barriers we hung outside our doors did. Something must have slipped through the cracks. Whose fault was it? Who infected whom? Was it from my grandmothers, my cousins, or my aunts? When did we let our guard down? Did I carry it home after buying pandesal in the morning? Or was it Tito J, who had been desperately protecting us all this time, driving himself mad with every little step of precaution he took. No, he did his best. We did our best. We thought we did everything right. If we did everything we could, staying at home and sanitizing everything, and we still struggled to look for aid when we got sick, what about those who are not as fortunate? What about the Filipinos who do not have the means to purchase sanitizers and are unable to quarantine? There are entire families out there who share a room. There are families who are starving, families without a roof. People have died in tents. We are not supposed to lie in wait. If I recall, nationwide lockdowns are a containment measure, not a long-term solution. Waiting is not a plan. The current system puts all the burden on the public to handle the virus. Physical distancing in cramped houses, paying for masks and disinfectants, sacrificing their jobs to stay at home without alleviating the issues that arise from such directives. Worse, progress is in limbo as daily cases are the highest they have ever been. The measures set in place a year ago have been ineffective. The government is too eager to assume that all Filipinos can follow these protocols to a T without preparing the necessary contingencies for when the worst happens. And when it does, the people are the easiest to blame. And accountability is lost. Hugas kamay, as they say. In the end, even when the people are doing their utmost best, they still lose. And even when they are giving it their all, the government fails to reciprocate 
when it should be returning the effort tenfold. My family did its part and continues to do so. The pandemic has cost us so much and we continue to endure, but for how much longer? If the government thinks that they're doing everything right, despite the upsurge in cases and the crippled medical system, then something is obviously very wrong. Jared's essay, We Did Everything Right, was published on the Philippine Daily Inquirer's Young Blood column on April 15, 2021. And today, he joins me all the way from Canada to talk about his personal life, his passion for writing, and his creative writing process. So first things first, welcome to the Independent Collective, formerly the Youngblood Podcast. Jared, how are you? How's your day so far? I am very happy to be here. Thank you, Leah, for inviting me. I just woke up actually like 30 minutes ago, so it's great. Yeah, (laughs) and I'm heading to bed right after this. I love it. Yeah. So different. <laughs> exactly. I love that. Anyway, awesome. So to break the ice before we dive right into our interview proper, let's play a game. Are you ready for it? Oh, I love games. Cool. Okay, Same. Sure. So it's called Best Day, Worst Day. So you have to divulge the best day you've ever had your entire life. If you could remember the date bonus point and wow. also your worst day. Best day of my life has to be the day I kissed a girl. That's what really (laughs) no, no, no. Oh, kissed a girl. It's a really tough thing because I've been a lot of good days. That's why it's like the question really caught me off guard. But let's say here's one of the good days. I think one of the good days was when somebody I knew at the Wendy, she was a fellow Youngblood writer. She told me, that day that my essay had been published to the Youngblood column. And it was in the middle of a very difficult computer science exam. So I had to keep all the excitement away until I finished the exam and had to submit it. I had 30 minutes left and I saw that she had messaged me, but I had to ignore the notification. So (laughs) one of the worst days was probably when... It was, okay, this is very, very, as in very dramatic all of a sudden. I don't want to start on like a very dramatic note, but one of the worst days was when I came home after kindergarten, like a day in kindergarten. I was five years old and Mm -hmm. I had just sort of, I came home to my grandfather, like grandfather's funeral. As in the night before, everything was just normal. But then when I came home, his casket was there in the living room. That was pretty bad, like as a young, like as a, as a five-year-old. Five-year-old, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty, like that shocked me because I thought he was fine like a few days ago, but that really opened my eyes to like the reality of death. Wow. I have no words to go exactly. against that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that but... was the game, so I played it. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll play it too, I guess. So to our listeners, comment down below or send us an email, you know, with your vote. Who has the best or the worst day? Jared or Leah? Anyway, for the best day, oh my gosh, I still have the date because I'm just sentimental like that. Okay. July 8, 2018. That was like one week before my 18th birthday and I was in the States. And you know in our setup call how I said I was, I'm in love with 
Western culture. Oh. And it was my first baseball game. It was the first day that I went home at like 1 or 2 a.m. I swear, it was the first day that, you know, I had so much fun and like singing and shouting at the top of my voice. Because if you've attended a baseball game, you know what it's like, right? What was your favorite baseball team? I, I really don't have, because that was my first and last baseball game. But the game was called the Red Sox game versus Texas something. Rangers, Texas Rangers. Yeah, Texas Rangers. And yeah, they played the song Sweet Caroline in between innings. And then they had like the kiss cam. And oh boy, I know. Very fun. It was more about the day itself, I guess, than the actual like aspect of baseball, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was fun because I I did so many things I never did before. So it was like corny, but you know, coming of age. But obviously, (laughs) yours is like way better, dude. (laughs) <laughs> young blood yeah. essay in the middle of a CS exam nothing beats that I mean I'm not a baseball fan but I'd love to go to a baseball game I mean I thought of being a baseball player once but... no way <laughs> yeah but I never really had the physical abilities but what was your worst day for you okay. I want to hear worst day. yeah it's kind of like in the same line oh my gosh I was 12 when my grandfather died and what made it worse was that it was the first big death in our family and it's also the day that i had my gross as it sounds my first menstruation so eh, i'm so sorry this is tmi but that was the worst day for me but yeah it does involve losing someone too so i guess yeah it sounds terrible yeah we're pretty equal on that level yeah i I don't think there's even a point of comparison for that game but at least it's nice to know we're on the same page right yeah (laughs) i think everyone's worst day will have to involve losing someone i guess in some way but thank you for playing along jara that was like a great way to kick off this interview and yeah i love how you answered how your first day is when you found out you got published and let's kind of like dive right into that so what's your young blood story right so why did you write your essay? What pushed you to apply? And what was your reaction when you got published? Okay, so for context, I wrote the article around a year after lockdown. So it was the March of 2021. Mm-hmm. And since lockdown, things were fine, I guess, for the most part. Up until that point, like a year after, and things started to get worse because of the Delta variant. Mm-hmm. And the Delta variant was more infectious than the previous ones. And that was when all of a sudden my family started getting sick, despite all the precautions we took. And on top of that, there were a lot of political situations that really affected me. And I was at my lowest in the pandemic at that point in time. All the while, I was still studying and I was studying for finals while Two of my family members were in critical condition in the hospital. Beforehand, they couldn't really find a spot or a hospital to accept them. So it was a very tough time. And I was so frustrated with the entire situation of having to study while the fear of a family member's death lingered with me. And I had to remain with my grandmothers who were vulnerable individuals who were also sick. And so for me, it was all a matter of waiting for very tragic news while 
I was uh, still studying in my room, cooped up in my room, and we're just waiting it out. And so it was a very spurious moment when I thought of <laughs> writing the essay, and I did. And I suppose I wanted to air out my frustrations and was hoping it would connect with somebody. Mm-hmm. And this might sound super weird, but I just checked looking back in 2021. April 15 was actually the day that my grandaunt died because of COVID. Oh, my condolences. Yeah, thank you. And I appreciate people writing about these vulnerable topics because it just made me feel less alone. I never got to read your essay on that day specifically, but mm. like looking back when I read it, it just all made sense. You know, it wasn't alone. And yeah, it's so brave of you to do that. So when you found out, was this the time when you said was your best day? You were in the middle of your exam, right? What was the first thing that you did? Did you write a super long Facebook post? Oh, I got published because, you know, people do that or share it to your closest friends. Yeah, the first thing that I did was probably tell my friends because during that time, well, when I received the news, my family members were still in the hospital, mm-hmm. and so we were still sort of isolating. I wasn't allowed to see anybody. Mm-hmm. My parents were abroad, and my sibling was abroad, so I, I, <laughs> I had nobody to talk to about it. So the first thing I did was I messaged my friends, and then I had to sort of just sit there. And deal with the realization that my word was out. Like it was the first time mm-hmm. I had ever uh, had a platform, such a large platform, where my writing was featured. So I had to sit there and then like think of well, what do I do with this message? And because my purpose for writing that was to send a very strong political message about the state of the country. At that moment, I had to sort of follow up with or share it with. The other biggest platform that I have, which mm-hmm. was my Facebook account, Facebook. and hopefully, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly, and hopefully that it would resonate with other people. Like that's what I hoped for. Somehow, some way, it would help someone out there who is also struggling with the same issue. Yeah, and kudos to you for that. It's such a heavy topic, but I love how there was like no tone of anger. If that makes sense, like it's so controlled. It wasn't like shouting. Yeah, so I, I really want to talk about your writing process. You know, how did you become the writer that you are today? Were you always that little kid behind, you know, books, reading, or were you someone who kind of like developed it later in life, probably like late in high school or college? So tell me who are your influences, your favorite books, all the works. Okay, so that's actually a great question because even I don't know how I became the writer I am today, but I think. I think with the kid that you described, the person, the kid who was always reading, and the person who developed that skill later in life, that was me. Both of them was me. I didn't start writing early. I'd say I started reading early. Mm-hmm. My mother, instead of toys, she would allow me to buy books every time we go to the mall. It would be one book, one book every trip. And sometimes I'd really have to like convince her, tug at her arm, saying, "Mom, Mom, get get me this book because I, I like it." And I'd start with these Geronimo Stilton books. Oh, the same! Uh, I love those books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and because I just I just love the stories. I mean, sure, mm-hmm. they seem like very kiddie picture books, but mm-hmm. they actually have good stories in them. And that developed my love for metaphors, and then it jumped to slowly, slowly like jumped to novels. Harry Potter books, uh, so on and so forth. 
then yeah, it was basically I started with a good foundation for reading. As in, I read a lot. As in, I had asked my mother for enough books. I had amassed enough books by the age of twelve that I had like a few stacks, and then I'd read at the li- school library too. So there's that, and then. For the writerly stage of my life, it didn't start until high school. And it started because of poetry and a crush I had. Ooh. So, you know, yeah, those, you know, those two, when you're a teenager, mm-hmm. you start thinking about romance and all that kind of stuff. And the thing is, yeah, I started writing a lot of poetry because of that. And then it slowly turned into, hey, look, I think I like what I'm doing with my writing so why not keep doing it because i've always been very shy when it comes to my personal life and share <laughs> i'm not really very open with my personal life so I, I writing for me was a way to express myself basically and i liked it so much that every time i'd perform on stage either a speech or a stand-up you know, stand-up poem, it would be something vulnerable. And that's Mm -hmm. how I developed my love for writing. And, yeah, that's how I became a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd assume you did a lot of public speaking or acting, you know. Because of the way you read. The way you read your essay is spectacular. I just just know because I was a public speaker myself and, yeah, the way you read just like resonated with me because you know the pauses and the diction and the emotions you put in, you know, just made me think, ah, oh, this guy's a public speaker. And it's very rare to find someone who's a speaker and a writer. So, what was that kind of balance for you growing up? Yeah. So one good factor into that is really having great English teachers, and I just like oh, to yeah. give a shout out to my junior high school. English department, USD Junior High School English department, you guys rock. They really gave me a solid foundation in both speaking and writing. In fact, I became the editor-in-chief for the high school publication. So it was a mix of really entering competitions and being coached by my English teachers and them helping me develop that passion to perform and to write. Mm -hmm. So... I think having good teachers really is fundamental to developing that skill. Yeah, shout out to all the great teachers we've had. You guys are such superheroes. And, you know, you mold great writers like Jared himself here. And yeah, Jared, just going back to your essay, do you still think about the political scene and the political climate here in the Philippines as the same way? Do you think things could have been improved? What do you think could have been done differently? And ultimately, was the political climate and, you know, the bad response of the Philippine government the reason why you and your family moved abroad? Okay, so great question. And my answer is no. (laughs) I have my stance on the Philippine government's incompetence during the COVID-19 pandemic has not changed one bit. In fact, it's only gets fiercer as time goes by because the government still seems to sort of sweep the issue under the rug. And, you know, with how the political climate is shifting, which I heavily disagree with, by the way, I fear it's only going to get worse. 
I think what could have been done was that we could have had government officials that really took accountability for the issues of the pandemic instead of putting the blame on the citizens themselves. Because let's be mm-hmm. honest, like, the government loves making an enemy out of the common Filipino. <laughs> they do. And so when that happens, it prevents us from moving forward and actually finding a solution, a medical solution, a scientific solution to a very scientific problem. It's not in itself political, but because of the actions of the government, they made it political. And so the rest of us really suffered. And yeah, I am nearing the end of the pandemic or I think going towards the last end of the pandemic before things opened up again, I moved to Canada, but that was not the reason that I moved abroad. It was studying abroad was a plan that my parents always had for me, and it was just delayed because of the pandemic. But it definitely isn't the reason (laughs) that I moved. That wasn't the reason that I moved at all. Thanks for clarifying, because for a moment, I thought that was one of the reasons why, because a lot of Filipino families are thinking of migrating or, I guess, just leaving the Philippines for a while. Yeah, definitely. But really, I think I I wouldn't blame families who think of that. Personally, it wasn't the reason that I moved. It really was something like a plan that we had a long Mm -hmm. time ago. Yeah. Yeah, you wrote about your family members who were admitted to the hospital. So can you talk a bit about them now how are you and your family members because you're a big family you wrote on your essay 12 people in a household so how are you guys after COVID-19 speak so yeah I think the biggest challenge of writing the essay for me was identifying which family member was which so I had to distinguish between two different uncles and I was supposed to or I thought of mentioning my grandmother's but it's a whole nother story and a whole nother issue. So I just I just implied that they were there. <laughs> to answer your question, I think that they're doing fine. Thankfully, the aftermath, the silver lining was that everybody recovered. But I'm sure that's not the same for all of the families who were affected by COVID. And mm. I wanted to write the article because I also wanted them to remember. My family's the type to always forget about their issues because they're the type to, okay, <laughs> We have an issue. We have an issue. Uh, We're going to forget about it when it's done. (laughs) And I think that's a big problem for us because it doesn't solve anything. So for the most part, I kind of wanted my essay to be the reminder of a very tough time in my family's life. And I was hoping that they learn from it, not just personally, but politically. I'm not sure if they have, but I'm just glad that it's that it's just there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They must be super proud. You should have a cutout of the actual publication of the paper and have it framed. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in the middle of your house somewhere. I'm not sure if it's worth it framing the essay, but I'll definitely, I think they'll definitely hear, hear about it because of this podcast. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Speaking of the podcast, we are down to our last question for the interview, and it's mostly about writing. So most of our listeners, as you know, are young Filipino writers. 
So can you share any advice for anyone listening who might want to be published on Youngblood? Right. So I think, honestly, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I feel like I feel like it would be hypocritical for me to get any sort of sage advice about writing because I fall into the pitfalls, a lot of pitfalls with the writing as well because I'm a very young writer. But I think one thing that I learned that has helped me sort of become successful in a way was to be to be very honest about your writing. What do I mean by that? I think to be specific you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. When I started, everything I wrote was for myself. And I tried my best to make them pretty. Because, hey, it sounded nice. I'm going to use all these flowery words and all these big words that nobody really understands in hopes of making it pretty. Like I, th- I thought it was the performative aspect of it. But when I learned to allow myself to be vulnerable, to really tap into my emotions and my experiences and to put that on paper and show it to the world. That's when I felt like I connected with an audience. And that's the best thing that a writer can can do, right? To connect with somebody. I think going back to your first question, your very first question in you know in the podcast was what was one of the best days of my life? And I just recalled this. It's when I was, it was the aftermath, or I went after I performed a piece for a school competition. I think it was a stand-up speech. I, I delivered a very personal piece about the pressure of being a firstborn son and having to excel academically and having to throw away all of your passions because of it. And it was a very, very, very personal piece. I'm not sure if anyone can remember it, but one notable thing that happened afterwards was when someone came to me and told me, Jared, you made me cry. I related it I really I related to so much and I just he he just he just told me that he, he was very very emotional <laughs> about a thing I wrote and I had nobody had told me that before and it made me happy. Not because he was sad, but because, but because I connected with somebody and they, for the first time, they let me know about it. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the best days of my writing life because for the first time I connected with a person. Okay, that's so, it. We're going to have you back to perform that piece. So <laughs> hopefully <laughs> I'll find it. High school stuff. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. You have to. And yeah. yeah, what a wonderful way to end the interview. Thank you so much, Jara. Do you have anything to promote? Any resources you might want to share to our listeners? For now, I really have nothing to promote. But hopefully everyone has a good time. That's it. <laughs> I'm just wishing everyone a good time. And um, keep yourself safe out there. Aware of everything that's happening. Keep fighting the good fight. Well said, and boy, did I have a good time. Thank you so much again, Jared Angela Lustre. Watch out for him for our final roundtable discussion this July 30. This has been Leah Shoko again for the Independent Collective. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Independent Collective. This episode was brought to you by the Independent Collective's production team, starting with Caitlin Isabel Ho. 
our executive producer, Jam Ilagan, our show writer, and last but not the least, truly yours, Leah Shoko, your host. Once again, thanks for listening to the Independent Collective. Till next time. <laughs>